Genesis chapter 36, which I think you'll find is an interesting chapter. It's a unique chapter. And for a lot of people, they wonder why it's even here. But I don't think you'll wonder that at all in a few moments. Genesis 36. It begins like this. Now, of course, that shows another word of continuation. This is a continual story of God's redemptive plan in the foundational book of Scripture. Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Let's pray. Father, please help us tonight. Please to open our hearts and minds to your word. We thank you for it. Thank you for your faithful people. Bless this service together. Bless the dear people at Temple and who are meeting tonight, Lord, and all of them whose hearts are broken or burdened. I pray you'll strengthen them, Lord, and be nigh to them as well. Bless your word in Jesus' name tonight. Amen. I want you to glance down at Genesis 36. Just trace with me through these verses very quickly, would you? Verse 2 says, Esau took wives of the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Abolamama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Bashamath, Ishmael's daughter, sister, sister of Nebajoth, and Ada bare to Esau Eliphaz, and Beshemoth bare Ruel, and so it goes. Look at verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan and Shobai and Zibion and Ana and Dishon and Ezer and Dishan. These are the dukes of the Horites, the children of Seir in the land of Edom and the children of Lotan and so on. It goes like this, exactly like this, in every single verse, all the way down to the very last verse. Look at that one, would you? Verse 43. Duke Magdiel, Duke Iram, these be the dukes of Edom according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Here it is. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Now, folks, what you'll notice, I think, immediately about all of this is that this chapter is a very long genealogy. It is a detailed list of none other than Esau's descendants. And you'll notice again that it's a list that begins with Esau's choice for his wives. Verse 2, Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan. Canaanites. That can't be good. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Aholibama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and so it goes. In other words, much to the dismay of Jacob and Rachel, Esau married a Canaanite, a Horite, an Ishmaelite. In fact, the name Aholibama literally means, the language literally means a priestess, a pagan priestess. You know, it's very interesting that Esau's grandchildren are noted twice in this chapter. They're noted first in the genealogy as descendants and then are delineated as, as dukes. Verse 15 again, would you? These were the dukes of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, Duke Teman, Duke Omar, Duke Zepho, Duke Kenaz, Duke Korah, Duke uh, Gatam, Duke Amalek. These are the dukes that came of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Adah. And of course, the Bible says elsewhere that this is a very dangerous land, so they're called the dukes of Hazard. I'm just kidding. That's crazy. But follow this. A duke, you understand, was essentially a tribal head, a sheik. Today, it might be the equivalent of the Saudi royal family, maybe a, or Jordanian royalty. But the point is this. 
The point of all of this is to emphasize the fact that as was prophesied way back a few chapters ago when we looked at it before, Esau has become a great nation. And this nation is called Edom. And it was as pagan and as godless as you can possibly imagine. And yes, they were also as anti-Israel, anti-Jacob as you can imagine. You may recognize the name Amalek there in verse 12, right? And you know that the Amalekites were only one group of descendants that tried to destroy Israel. And folks, in fact, if you ever try to do an in-depth study of Genesis 36, you're going to find that all of them, every name of every son and grandson given, ends up becoming a pagan foe of God's people. And how? How in the world could this ever happen? Remember Esau. Esau is Abraham's grandson. He is Isaac's son. He is Rebekah's son. He's Jacob's twin brother. He is Benjamin and Joseph's uncle. It's like saying this person is D.L. Moody's son, Hudson Taylor's brother, and Adoniram Judson's nephew. That's who this person is. So then how does he and his descendants go so far from the things of God? Well, the answer is in the very beginning of the chapter. Marriage. It all begins with the wrong marriage. Girls who choose to marry an unbeliever can pretty much go ahead and count on their children and grandchildren becoming unbelievers. Unless God intervenes and he gets saved. You fellows today, you marry a pagan girl, then you are relegating your future children to having a pagan mother. It's just common sense. But it's also illustrated over and over and over again in the Word of God. So, not surprisingly, in all of the names that are listed in Genesis 36, and all of the sons and the grandsons and the daughters that are, are mentioned here, not one of them, think of this, not one of them in the Bible go on as a child of faith or become a servant of God. How many people today name their little boy Kenaz, Nahath, Gatan, Shema, or Shepo? Right? Now contrast that. Contrast that, beloved, to what follows in the very next chapter after this genealogy. Chapter 37, verse 2 says, These are the generations of Jacob. And it begins with Joseph. Now note this. What names are going to go on in generations that follow this right here? Hadar? Masarika? Mizah? No. Here it's Joseph. It will be Benjamin, later it's Aaron, Joshua, Elijah, David, Jeremiah, Mary, Elizabeth, John, Jesus, Paul, Peter. In fact, Genesis chapter 36 is pretty much the beginning and ending of Esau's descendants. Genesis 37 is the beginning of Jacob's descendants, which essentially, beloved, has never ended. Ponder that for a moment. This is why Esau and Edom are mentioned about 150 times in the Bible. The names Jacob and Israel are found over 2,000 times in the Bible and are descendants just on and on and on. So it's obvious that God is on his throne 
And it's obvious that God has, is continuing His glorious plan of redemption. He is going forward with His covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We've all studied for weeks now, and now it's Joseph. Chapter 37, again, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph. Israel was Jacob. You know, Jacob's cha- name was changed to Israel, and it's always Israel now going forward. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many covers. Oh, colors. Oh, boy. There's that favoritism again. And you notice this time he's not even trying to hide it. He has made for Joseph his own favorite son uniform. Put this on. Let all your brothers know and the whole world know. It was a beautiful ornamental type robe. And the favoritism that Jacob shows to Joseph and that Sarah showed to Isaac and that Isaac showed to Esau and that Rebekah showed to Jacob. You do understand that it wasn't just the favoritism that created so many problems, but it simply revealed the problems. In other words, the the real culprit, if you want to go back to the beginning of all this favoritism, the real culprit is the rivalry that exists because Abraham had two wives, because Isaac had two wives, and Jacob had two wives. And I just want to remind you of what Jesus said. From the beginning of creation, it was not so. That was never God's plan. Yeah, the times of this ignorance God winked at. But ever since the fall of man and sin in the garden, since it has entered, God is dealing with sinners and with flesh and with carnal minds. And this is the reason for all the troubles, for all the trials and all the tragedies that we have read about so far in this foundational series, including yet another tragedy. Chapter 37, verse 4. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Now follow this. What are the reasons that Joseph's brothers hate him so much? Is it just because he's the favorite son? Well, it's not just because of that. You go back to verse 2 again. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Pastor, he's a snitch. He's a tattletale. That's why they hate him. Okay. I will agree that if you have carnal people and, and you do something what they would call a snitch and snitches lie in ditches and all that stuff, that, yeah, that might increase their hatred. But i got to tell you this. There is a hint of Joseph's integrity in verse 2 as well. Because, yes, you could say that he told on his brothers. But then you have to ask yourself, what was his alternative? Basically, his only other alternative would be to conform to them. You do understand that they were doing something wrong. They were doing something that Jacob would not have approved of. And 
at 17 years of age, he was sent out to them. He was sent out to those brothers in the field to learn shepherding from the four sons of the two slave wives, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. But unfortunately, young Joseph is faced with his first real temptation recorded in the Bible, and he's away from home, and he's away from Jacob's watchful eye, and the sons of the slave women could be now finally very assertive with the son of the favored wife. And apparently... In the shepherding business, they were up to no good. They were up to some kind of evil. But notice what Joseph does. Instead of yielding to whatever temptation to conform to what they were doing and go along with the gang, instead of going along with their wrongdoing so as to be accepted by the gang, which, by the way, is always, always the easier route, Joseph stood there against the pressure And he did what I say is the right thing. You know, I don't know why so many preachers have done Joseph an injustice by painting him as a a tattletale and a sneaky spy, some sort of an opportunist here. Nothing in his life, really, as you're going to see in the next few weeks, nothing indicates this. What he really does and was is a teenager with courage. Which, by the way, maybe he didn't have the, the years and years of wisdom in how he handled it, but he had courage. And that's also one of the reasons he was Jacob's favorite. It's one of the reasons he was given this special coat. This was a generational coat. Jacob was marking Joseph as the favored leader to go forth, his father's heir. Because after all, who else is going to wear it of his sons? We just finished studying this the last few weeks. Reuben, who violated his father's wife. Simeon and Levi. Those boys who set up and murdered the sons of Hamor? No, I I see that Joseph had God's hand upon him. And Jacob knew it. So he wears the robe. He didn't ask for the robe. He was given the robe. He wears the robe. And in addition to that, he has a dream. He didn't ask for the dream. He was given that dream. And specifically, it is a prophetic dream. In fact, he had two dreams. Look at verse 5. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaf stood round about, and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shall thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more, for his dreams and for his words. They're hating him for something God gave him. The words in the dream. Verse 9, And he dreamed yet another dream, and he told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and my brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. Now look, I know, I know, I've heard all the sermons. I may have preached one when I was 21. It's safe to say Joseph is not going to win any awards. He's not going to, you know, write a book called How to Win Friends and Influence Siblings. 
Because this is definitely throwing gasoline on a fire. But again, beloved, I say this. These dreams are from God. These dreams are prophetic and they include his family. So he could have just kept it to himself. God is at work here. A reminder that even in Joseph's dreams, God is continuing to bring forth his plan of redemption forward, forward, and more forward. So Joseph saw the sheaves. Joseph saw the stars bowing down, both of them. Ultimately, as the sheaves and the stars bowed before Joseph, picturing his family, so too is it and will it be with Christ. Every knee shall bow to the exalted Christ, the exalted Christ of things in heaven, there's your stars, and things on earth, there's the sheaves. Look at verse 11. His brethren envied him, but his father observed this saying. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. That's just kind of hard he has. Verse 14, And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man, a certain man, found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence. And I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Whew. Now I want to tell you what this scene reminds me of. Because I think in the weeks ahead, as we study this man's life, you're going to see it over and over again. It reminds me and takes me back to eternity past, where the Father and the Son enjoyed perfect fellowship in the heavenly Hebron. And yet, just as Jacob saw the perils that lay ahead for his son, so too the Heavenly Father, knowing what awaited Jesus, sent him into this world of sin. Come, said the Father, I will send thee. And immediately Jesus replied, here am I. And so too Joseph left. It was a long and perilous journey from Hebron to Shechem in those days, but he went. Here am I. He went seeking those boys who had wandered from home. And finally, with the help of a certain man, he found his brother in Dothan even farther away than expected. His mission was discharged, right? He had done the Father's will. And now he's armed with the good news and the tidings from home. Indeed, the news was that the Father loved them and longed for their return. But what happened? They saw him. They derided his words and his, his visions, his dreams. And they immediately said in the hearts, let's kill him. And then their rejection of him was heightened by selling him for the price of a slave. Look at verse 23. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. 
And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. What does the song say? Out of the ivory palaces and into a world of woe. Jesus came, guided by the Holy Spirit. John 1.11 says he came into his own, and his own received him not. Go back to verse 22. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness. And they lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands and deliver him to his father again. So yet alive, verse 25. And they, he's in the pit. They sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let our, not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Verse 28. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now follow that. What happened to our Lord? He was sold for the price of a slave. He was handed over to the Gentiles. In his final disappearance, his empty tomb glossed over by his own brethren with a lie. They wiped their hands. They declared themselves innocent, never to, be, never to see the Father's Son again. But oh, they will see Him again when they look on Him whom they have pierced. They will know what you and I ought to know, that regardless of the circumstances all around us, and regardless how things appear, God is on His throne. And His Son, Jesus, to this moment, is still bringing many sons to glory. Look at verse 23, would you? And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brother, they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. Can I ask you a question? Why do you suppose they did that? If you're going to kill, that's their plan so far, if you're going to kill or even sell the boy into slavery, why take part like a pack of wolves in tearing, taking off his coat? Well, you know why. That coat represented the very thing they hated the most about Joseph. It represented sonship, privilege, favor, it represented the love and the acceptance of the Father. And you know what, beloved? Just as it was with Cain towards Abel, just as it was with Ishmael towards Isaac, with Esau towards Jacob, just as it was with the elder son toward the prodigal and his new robe, all these brothers of Joseph hated him and envied him and resented him for nothing else other than his close relationship to the Father. One of the lessons that we learn in the New Testament is that the hatred and the envy and the wrath that the Pharisees, these are the sons of Jacob and Abraham, the brethren, the Pharisees, the hatred that they showed toward the Lord Jesus Christ always rose up the strongest. Read the Gospels. It always came up when they perceived that his relationship to God the Father was apparent to the multitudes it says for envy 
they delivered him. Right here in the first book of the Bible, we have this oft-repeated reminder that the fallen carnal heart of man will always, always, out of resentment and envy, despise and reject and, yes, persecute any person who appears to be favored by the true God. And as obvious as that is materially and physically, by that I mean it's the basis of Marxism and communism, class warfare, as obvious as that is politically, this sort of being favored, it's even more so spiritually. We go all the way back to Cain and Abel. And Jesus told them, they hate you because they hate me and my relationship to the Father. You think about the apostles. All of the apostles were either martyred or in John's case persecuted and exiled. All of them. They were both Christians and Jews. Just double the anger and the envy. So again, the brothers of Joseph do hear what the carnal hearts of men always want to do. That is, with envious hearts, they will attack the symbol of Joseph's favor. And for a few fleeting moments, it must have felt really good to tear that coat up. They hated it. And they hated him. Verse 24. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. By the way, what's that remind you of? Well, the Bible says that when they stripped Jesus of his robe, that sitting down they watched him there. Just to add to the indignity. How in the world can these brothers sit down and eat a meal while hearing the cries and the anguished pleas of their brother Joseph? Verse 25 again. And they sat down to eat bread and lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it down. Where? To Egypt. Can you imagine? You know, it goes on in the rest of these verses to say that they bartered. You know, if you're going to sell a slave in those days, you would bargain. And it was like selling a horse and they would, you know, look you over and you would talk about, well, he's young, he's intelligent, he's got this skill or that skill. And they're up there and they're bargaining. He's in this pit. They're haggling over how much he's worth. Verse 29. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes. You realize that these brothers knew, hear this, they understood that when they were going to lie to their father, put some blood on their pieces of that coat, say that, you know, he must have been killed by an animal, they know that this is going to crush their father's heart. They know it in part because, yeah, he's his favorite, but also because Jacob is the one who sent Joseph out there. Knowing the danger, on an errand that he could have just as easily sent a servant on, it's going to destroy their father's spirit, but they don't care. Proverbs 12 says the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. You know, without the grace and the mercy of God, this is what I pondered about this story when I thought, man, how can anybody be that evil, that mean, that nasty? But I got to thinking, and I was convicted in my soul because, and thankful 
Because I thought without the grace and the mercy of God, our hearts have infinite capacity for evil. And in fact, but for the grace of God, none of us in this room are as bad as we could have been. We could have been these boys. Pastor, I was really, really, really bad. I was super mean and evil when I was lost. Yeah, and were it not for the grace and mercy of God, you could have been ten times worse, a hundred times worse. One of these boys. So Jacob gets the news. Verse 34. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him, sold Joseph into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Now follow this carefully. We're almost done. No, we're not. Here's my question. All during this time of injustice and all during this time of deceit, all through this anguish in the heart of Joseph and the heart of Jacob, where was God? I mean, that's what the world says. That's what Sam Harris says. They say, you know, if there's a loving God and He's all-powerful, how come people suffer? Why is there injustice to this, this young boy who I've said all along is a young man of integrity? Where was God in Genesis chapter 37? Well, I can tell you Jacob must have wondered that. For 20 years from this point, his heart is going to grieve and be filled with guilt for something that didn't even happen. Joseph was not killed by wild beasts. And certainly Joseph could have wondered all of that. Because what did he do wrong? He was being a good, obedient son. Here am I. I'll go to my brethren, father. What did he do to deserve a fate that for most people would be a fate worse than death? Where is God? I don't know that you find it anywhere in the chapter except the last verse. Because in the last verse, there's a really good hint as to where God was. And it's right here in verse 36. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, captain of the guard. He said, Pastor, what in the world does it have to do with God being there? Well, let me ask you. What are the chances that these Midianite merchantmen would sell Joseph to an Egyptian and especially to the one Egyptian who's the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. I mean, you take a slave from Africa all the way to the Caribbean and then to Florida and then to President John Adams and you have a little bit of an idea of what's happening with Joseph. I want you to look at some verses with me. They should be on the screen. If they're not, I'm reading from Psalm 105, and you can look in your Bibles. This is a remarkable text. Verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. Verse 5, remember His marvelous works that He hath done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. Okay, what wonders, what marvelous works, what deeds? These amazing things. Verse 9, which covenant he made with Abraham 
and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel, his new name, for an everlasting covenant. Okay, what wonderful, marvelous deeds. There's one, you just read it. And in fact, this entire chapter, Psalm 105, all it does is just list one deed after another, one marvel after another. I'm going to show you. You'll see in the screen, we'll work our way backwards for a moment. Verse 44, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people. Now, all these things, all these marvelous deeds done by God in Egypt started where? Started with what? Look at verse 17 on your screen. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. Wait a minute. God sent him? That's what the Bible says. He sent a man. Look at verse 18. Whose feet they hurt with fetters. I just thought about that verse for a while. Iron fetters on your feet. It hurt him. Pain. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. Verse 21, and he made him lord of his house and ruler of his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure, to teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. Now, wait a minute. How did this happen? How did Joseph become second in command of the entire Egyptian empire? The world's greatest superpower. In fact, in reality, if you read the story, which we're going to do in the weeks ahead, he's the leader of the world's great, he's the leader of the world's greatest kingdom. Joseph, the hated boy in the pit. You have to go all the way back to a pit. How did, how did he become this man who saved the world in famine and saved his family later? And that dream about the sheaves and the stars came true? You have to go all the way back to a pit where a young boy is sold into slavery, not just to anybody, but to Midianites who then sold him, not just to anybody, but to the captain of the guard of Pharaoh himself. I say again, the hint, beloved, as to where God is during all of this is in verse 36, where Joseph is sold to Potiphar's house. But here's the thing. Jacob didn't know any of this. And more importantly, Joseph, he didn't know any of this. Folks, Joseph is a young man who's persecuted, lied about, betrayed, and now he's sitting in here without any hope. And he could get bitter. And he could get angry. And he could be resentful at God over all of this. Joseph could very well look at all the circumstances of his, his an unfairness of his life and just lose his faith. Because I've met so-called believers who's experienced far less and they've lost their faith. But what happens in Potiphar's house? You know the story. Now we are almost done. Look at chapter 39. We have to close with this. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar and Osir, Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him to the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, 
and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord, notice the capital letters, that's the covenant name for God, Jehovah God. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord, capitals, all letters, Jehovah God, the God of the covenant, blessed the Egyptian's house. We talked about that three weeks ago. For Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. In other words, he could do anything. He trusted him, and Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. Now, folks, I want you to just think about this very carefully. A lot of people in Joseph's sandals would have looked at his circumstances up to this point and the situation he was in and say, Look, Moses, how can you write these words about me that the Lord was with me? How can you say, I am a slave? I'll never see my family again. How can you say that, that I'm prosperous and, quote, well-favored? I'm a slave. And I'm a million miles from home. I have no economic empowerment. I'm a victim. So here's what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to sue my brothers. And then I'm going to file a class action lawsuit against the Midianites and the Egyptians. And then I'm going to spend the rest of my life in bitterness and anger toward a God who would ever let this happen. And during these next few years, I'm going to hunt down my brothers one by one and say, my name is Joseph Ingamatoya. You lied to my father, whatever. <laughs> Prepare to die. But really, you know, that's a lot of people. I dare say most people would not have exactly felt that the Lord was with me. That the Lord was with Joseph in that same situation. And for sure, they wouldn't have done what Joseph does next. Verse 7. And it came to pass that after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. Now, wait a minute. What's the devil trying to do? What's he tried to do all along with Jacob and Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael? Always. Why is he trying to tempt what he, who he knows is a bitter man or would be normally and ruin his life? Because he wants to ruin the plan of redemption. But, look at verse 9. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice how Joseph viewed Potiphar's wife. A, he saw it as a great wickedness, not an affair or a, a mistake or a weakness or a disease or a disorder, a great wickedness, and then he said, against God. There's the proof he's not bitter. How could I do this against God? The God who he sees is right there, right there in his presence. Again, that answers the question as to whether or not Joseph was bitter at God or had lost his faith. Because he's a long way from home. He knows full well what Mrs. Potiphar will do if he refuses her. But he still puts God in the center of his life. 
for the next several lessons weeks ahead, Joseph is going to take center stage. As a matter of fact, Joseph, we talked about how much time in Genesis, this foundational book is spent on creation, a couple chapters. Joseph alone is going to take up 25% of this entire foundational book. He is not only a perfect type of Christ, he remains a very convicting example of what we as believers can and ought to do in the face of fierce temptation and great persecution. Of course the Lord was with Joseph. Of course he was with him through all the circumstances, no matter how bad they were. And of course he's with you if you're his child. Today, tomorrow, and as we'll see, for all of eternity. And God's people said, Father, thank you for your word. Please, Father, help us to glean in this study of this first book of the Bible those truths that are powerful and needful, that are given to us here. Help us, Father, to erase from our minds and our hearts that these are silly children's stories. Whether these are revelations from heaven, that your plan of redemption is going somewhere and it's right on schedule. And that you care and you see every individual child of yours. Help us to have this kind of integrity and courage and faith that Joseph had and gratitude that he demonstrated. We praise you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.